Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by the award-winning NordVPN. I've been using Nord for years now because it secures my internet traffic and keeps my data private, especially when traveling or on public Wi-Fi. NordVPN has servers in over 60 countries, does not log your data, unlocks Netflix and other geographic restrictions on entertainment content, and has a 30-day money-back guarantee. To save 70% on a subscription, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash NordVPN or use the promo code BT. Future. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Fritz Haberman. He's the CEO at PicMonkey and he's also a nature photographer. Fritz, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. Appreciate yeah, it. I'm excited to have you back on the show. You, you, this is kind of a, I guess, a part two. You could say um, we we really spent a bunch of time in in the first kind of recording covering your background and and what exactly PicMonkey is. So if people want a really good in depth interview then go on the website and, and check that out. But do you maybe still want to give us a bit of background on yourself, maybe some career highlights, and then what exactly you you do at PicMonkey and how, how it came to be and what exactly you guys do? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, let's see. I, um, I have a career that spans sort of uh, the last 25 years or so. I think I cut my teeth after grad school um, at a company called Aldus, which was purchased by Adobe, I think, the most interesting thing we did there was InDesign. So a lot of your listeners probably know that. Sure. Uh, so layout program that a lot of magazines and newspapers use nowadays. So there's a lot of really interesting war stories in there that, um, you know, I think uh, my my uh, history um, really sort of was the about 18, 20 years that I spent in uh, Adobe here and there. I've also done... Um, a lot of different uh, business aspects for uh, folks like Real Networks, especially during the MP3 and um, real heyday of uh, online music in the beginning, in the late 90s. Um, and uh, then I always, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, but I, I always try to uh, pick places I go where I would really love to use their product. Sure. And uh, that was certainly the case for Adobe and, and Aldous. I'm really visually oriented with my photography stuff. And uh, it was always great to use new products, like when Photoshop came out or even when Lightroom came out. As a photographer, I got to use that in a way in advance. So I love that kind of stuff. But for me as well, um, I like to uh, marry sort of my interests with then furthering uh, a part of the landscape. In this case, you know, my next stop was PopCap Games. Uh, uh, you know, um, online gaming, social gaming, mobile gaming, this kind of stuff. So we make uh, Plants vs. Zombies and Bejeweled and things like that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and so that that was a great experience, super creative people in and of themselves. And, uh, and that was the first time where I really recognized for me that going places where I want to use the product is really, really necessary. Not Not just, you know, rewarding, but wow, you can have so many more insights and uh, interesting things to think about when you do that. Yeah, um, it, it amazes me how many people don't actually 
tr- uh, well, maybe if they're not necessarily the target market, but that don't actually use the product like a user would. Yeah. Right? Like it's, I, I think that you can catch so many weird inconsistencies or, or flows just by actually using the product, right? Because I find sometimes when you're doing design or development, you're just building the pages or the sections and then yeah. you don't actually see how they connect and, and flow together. And we'll probably get into some more of that kind of stuff later on. Sorry to cut you off, but it just yeah, no, it came to me. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point that that feeling of sort of, hey, I've been siloed in this particular feature in and of itself and I don't see the bigger picture, you know, the forest through the trees, a very, I think a very common problem that, you know, even any of the companies I've been at suffers, but you can see it in some of the designs that come out from folks as well. And you can kind of tell it, you can tell it, you know, as a customer in and of itself. But I do, th- I think you're right. That, that, that for me is important is, you know, understanding the product that you have, but really being a customer, right? So that's easy when you're working at a gaming company, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> that's, enough. that's really, easy. you know, it's like, I'm standing there waiting for my latte. I'm going to play a quick game of Bejeweled. But yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my next stop was uh, Lynda.com. So Linda Weinman and uh, her husband, Bruce, started that company a number of years ago, probably about 20 years ago now. And, um, you know, that that was really set up as a learning company uh, where they initially created videos, uh, sort of multimedia DVDs and things like that. And with the bubble bursting, they saw a great opportunity in doing that online. And um, when when I went there, that was another one of those like, hey, uh, quite selfishly, I was a photographer. They had great videos on photography and you know how to use in this case Lightroom and things like this. Sure. Um, and uh, so, to me, that was another one of those. Well, if you go along the customer journey as a customer, and that's where you work, and you have influence upon that product. You can really, you know, be some greater than its parts kind of uh, situation, but it also really, um, you know, is is a very rewarding kind of experience as, you know, as a person working in the industry. So, um, so Lynda.com was a great experience. We sold to LinkedIn a, a number of years ago, and um, I, I wound up at PicMonkey mostly because, again, for me, uh, the the industry has changed so much around what I'd you know, put in air quotes as visual communication. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of people nowadays that have access to tools, whether it's your phone, whether it's, you know, the internet, um, that are wanting to do more than just, you know, take a selfie or put a sticker on something. They're actually, um, you know, they're, they're creating their personas online or they are selling things on an Etsy or a Shopify, or they're creating their own websites, or they are, um, you know, part of what we call the gigster community where, um, you know, people are finding side hustles and things like this, that really the internet has, uh, internet has opened up as a possibility. And so all of these folks, what we see over the last couple of years and why I wound up at PicMonkey was um, that, that this, this area is both exploding but is in real need of those sort of accessible tools, if you will, that allow you to really stand out from the crowd and really visually communicate. So I came here as sort of a photographer and had a product and, and technology, wound up as a CEO. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a ton of fun watching that sort of evolution that I really think we're in almost day one of, if you will. So give us a bit of an overview of what exactly PicMonkey does. I, I get you just kind of give a quick, but give yep. us some of the features and functionality because 
it's actually really quite innovative what you guys are actually building. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think you, you, you start with PicMonkey back before, you know, all of this sort of what I'd call e-commerce digital marketing stuff was really uh, at the forefront. And then PicMonkey spun out of um, Google, which had bought this other company called Picnic. And we pretty much did, you know, just a, sort of like an online Photoshop built in Flash, et cetera. Um, and so it was very accessible online. It really called out, you know, 90% of Photoshop and just said, people don't need that. And what you really need is very quick edits to a photo. Um, it was all free at the time. And it was a really great start. And what you noticed within that is that with the phones and the cameras, you know, improving the 12 megapixels and just ubiquity of that, that um, photography and photos, just to update photos, really became more of a commodity. And you know, you, you can do most everything uh, that PicMonkey did, say, five years ago, just in the phone itself, like in iOS or Android. Which is really cool, actually. It's really cool. And some of the new, you know, the uh, iPhone 10 and 11 and stuff like this that they have in there, um, just some of the capabilities are you know, really fantastic in terms of lighting and you know, just all that kind of stuff. But what that then meant is that um, at the same time, it, again, this explosion of, hey, you know, I'm I'm a person and I create, I have a bead store or a candle making or I want to make t-shirts. This aspect um, really became more than just one thing that they were creating, but really became a number of different what I'll call use cases and you'll probably hear me say that a lot, but the industry changed from being a person like a graphic designer or a photographer sure. and into what we call solopreneurs, uh, which is just a fancy name for people that are starting their own business and have to wear a lot of different hats. And so if you look at those kind of people, what they're doing is one day or maybe all in one day, they have to advertise, they have to take photos of their stock, they have to price things, they have to market it on, you know, uh, any kind of uh, social uh, platform or in their stores, they have to create a website, they have to go talk to their customers, they have to deal with refunds. So all of this stuff, wherein what at the end of the day, they don't want to go to art school to become a graphic designer, they don't want to be, you know, an MBA, and they don't have the uh, experience in marketing in and of itself. So that set of use cases, which is very wide, is really what we're trying to penetrate with sort of this visual communication stuff. And the solution that we've then built is a pretty easily accessible uh, product that has a lot of content for you. You can easily just walk into PicMonkey and pull out some templates, you know, put in your photo, slap some text on it and publish it. But we also have things that, uh, you know, like stock photography, if you want to make it look uh, a little bit more professional. And then where we sort of differentiate, and this is the, what I'd say is the difference between sort of a lot of um, more easy to use, but um, limited in functionality products and the higher end Adobe, is we sort of sit in the middle and we've just replatformed um, our, our product in essence. And I took a lot of the, um, let's say the philosophical approaches we used in InDesign um, to really build a deep platform that has a lot of capabilities for folks. And the trick for us, yeah, the trick for us then is 
how do you present that capability in an easy to use way so that you don't become a Photoshop, you know, in terms of its learning curve, and yet you provide the depth of technology that can really make somebody, any one of these people do a use case that is, uh, you know, very individual for them, really stands out and winds up being professional. And so that mixed with, you know, a very accessible pricing and things like that, that's what we're trying to solve. Sure. And at the, at the same time, you know, kind of be there a bit more as a, almost like a, uh, a mentor along the way, right? We're here to help you. So more than just the tool, but also, you know, we have a now learning center with a lot of videos and things like that and how to do your brand or how to make a logo and things like this. So that sort of destination one-stop shopping for solopreneurs and digital marketers is where we're going. Sure. Well, I think the other thing too, and, and just to kind of elaborate on your point earlier is if you're a brand and you're just starting up and it's one or maybe there's less than a handful of you and you have new product and come in and you need to get it on Instagram with this afternoon, for example, you don't have the time, money, or really probably even the resources to go to a traditional agency to create you all those unique templates that you could either potentially add in your own if you know the software or get yep. them to do it because the turnaround on that stuff is is going to be probably weeks. Maybe if you're lucky, you work with a freelancer that can turn it around in a few yep. days, but you want it out within hours, not within days, right? And I think yep. that's the thing that you guys solve for a lot of people. And you could correct me if I'm wrong. I think you could you even solve that problem for the professionals that know the Photoshops and the Lightrooms and, and other design software because it's quicker to use your software, right? Like if I started an e-commerce company, it makes way more sense for me to use your guy, you guys than using the traditional kind of Photoshops of the world in, in a lot of cases because I have to create a lot of that stuff from scratch or go find other templates. It's like, well, you guys just already have all that stuff there for me. Is, is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, I think that's super fair. And not only that, but then, you know, I'll add a couple of different things to that. So sure. yes, absolutely. You know, if I am that, again, solopreneur or what have you, to your point, I don't have days and I don't have, you know, th uh, five or six zeros at the end of the check I can write to somebody that, that can do this stuff for me. And so for me, I need fast turnaround. And on top of that, I need I need somebody to help me understand what's good and what's not. Yeah. If I already understood that, then I'd be a graphic designer or I'd already know those things and that's no problem. And I'm probably using Adobe anyway. So the likely it's the case that it's like, I don't have the time to understand what's good and what's not, what will help me and what won't. So that's where templates, as an example, um, or stock photography really suddenly help me, right? I can just say like, hey, I need a picture of a beach, type that in, and or a an Instagram post with a beach shot on it, type that in, and the tools just give you that kind of stuff, and you know that it's going to be quality. So that's number one. Um, the second, I think, your point around having to do this quickly, what sort of the next step that you typically find, because a lot of people can go to either free products or other places, and this isn't unique to PicMonkey, but just in general, sure. and just quickly do something that they need right away. And that's fine. But after a while, you're running a business. And so you need to keep these things organized, as an example. You need to keep them on whatever machine or place you're at. 
I need that to be accessible. Hey, I'm in San Francisco suddenly talking to a client and I didn't bring my laptop or whatever. How do I get to that document? Um, I need to talk to my client over there and they just by, you know, they're, they're in Europe today. How do I do that? Well, you know, tools like PicMonkey then give you that extra level in our case, you know, collaboration or in our case, um, you know, cloud storage and things like this. And so the tools and the sort of the maturation of people as they need, have these particular needs as they're running their business, the tools have to stay ahead of all these needs. And at the same time, that's what we think PicMonkey does, obviously, but at the same time, provide that in an easy to use way. So for us, it's always a, how do you, uh, how do you provide it in an easy to way, use way that um, doesn't um, make it so that you kind of, to use a, a technical term, nerf, yeah. <laughs> nerf the uh, the functionality, right? Because that 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 just makes you, you know, that's a, that's a a um, for for the customers out there, they know potentially what they want, or they want to be surprised sure. and really delighted about and things like that. So I think that we, that's where, from a pick monkey perspective, yes, all of those things we want to try to address, but we also want to mature with the needs and provide the functionality going forward. When And also being able to build graphics for the different platforms and different sizes, right? And kind of yes. repurpose the same types of content and designs across the different platforms. Absolutely. That's another one. In, in addition to what I was just mentioning, as you mature, you'll see quickly like, oh, wait, Instagram, you know, I've, I'm getting this much, um, you know, return on investment for that. I want to try Pinterest. Yeah. You know, and I want to connect directly into their ad platform. Pinterest is a totally different way of doing that. Well, I can just go to PicMonkey. I already have my design. Um, you know, some some of the new stuff that we're about to release is going to be really cool in terms of multiple destination kind of things where you can just easily say like, hey, I need these five different formats. Give me a an Etsy. Give me a um, a um, you know Instagram post, and then give me a Pinterest pin long form. And then, you know, that kind of thing is really, really critical. And that's what I mean by the products and uh, the, the platform staying ahead of the needs of, you know, um, the, the folks as they explore their needs for their business. Yeah, no, totally. So I want to kind of dive into some of the design kind of UX side of and get your thoughts on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I think maybe the simplest place to start is what does creativity mean to you? Mm-hmm. Well, there's many answers to <laughs> certainly as a photographer, I think I have one answer. And I think, you know, as a musician, I have a different answer. But I think that um, for me, I think there's a uh, there's a certain uh, um, combination of what I would say is intent and flow. And for me, I think intent is that sort of um, almost the hard skills around, you know, resolve or focus or being resilient. And I think that, um, you know, if I think of my days at Adobe with InDesign, you know, that was a, uh, that's a back in the day of shrink wrap software, you know, predominant big, big heavyweight iron cast sort of coding C++ and super, um, you know, uh, diligent stuff. But um, we also had to convince um, the 
the company, um, in essence, that we were going to replace an already successful product in PageMaker. And which basically, you did do. Which we did do, exactly. But I think the, the point of that is that there was a, a, an amount of focus and resilience that um, you need to... Um, you need to basically overcome or break through or push through in order to get that stuff really both, you know, obviously hit the street, but also uh, realizing your vision. And I think that those hard skills, whether it's resilience focus or any of these kinds of things, I think is one side of that equation, if you will. And, um, and I think the other side of that for me is, is flow, if you will. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a, term that is bandied about a lot, um, but not a lot of people really understand it. If you, um, if you read uh, Flow by Michele Chichmichele, something like that, I forget his last name is really hard to pronounce, but, sure. um, but that book is fantastic around that feeling of what, what really is flow. And to me, that is an important ingredient um, that you can tell when it's missing. I certainly tell it when it's missing for me in uh, photography or in music. Um, and I think the aspects of it that are interesting from a software perspective is maybe where we were just touching on or in terms of, you know, knowing the customer and being a, um, being one of the customers. And so I would think of ingredients to that would be things like immersing, uh, immersion into the product, immersion into what people are really trying to do. Um, I don't know if I gave you this example last time, but InDesign is a great example where, um, you know, uh, things like character styles and paragraph styles were a, a great introduction. We did that. But when we saw people really just cutting and pasting text <laughs> and they all they wanted was like, make make this thing over here look like that thing. You know, that was a great example where it's like, hey, wait a minute. Um you know, we, we created all these constructs around basically the simple use case that people wanted to do, which was make this thing look like that thing and make it super easy for me. And you couldn't, you can't really understand that unless you really immerse yourself. Totally. And, you know, and the, so that, that, that flow aspect is really important mixed with potentially then I think the other ingredient for me would be flexibility. Um, we, um, I, I know in a lot of cases, like a PopCap, I'll take a great example of PopCap, um, where um, we had uh, a, a big hit on our hands with Plants vs. Zombies. Sure. And um, it took a while to make a PVZ2. Um, and that was because we moved, you know, we, we tried a whole bunch of different themes and we tried a whole bunch of different uh, perspectives on how to make the, the game better. But that idea of being flexible... And at the same time, really immersing yourself allowed us ultimately to build a really fantastic game in PVZ2 and ultimately wound up um, building Garden Warfare. Um, the team up in Vancouver made that because we were like, hey, you know, yeah, let's try that. Let's be flexible around what this uh, can do. And that that in and of, of itself has been a great uh, sort of thing for both EA and, and, um, and PopCap in and of itself. So to me, I think this feeling of um, flow mixed with um, intent is interesting to think about for user experiences. 
Um, I, I hope your listeners know the Christopher Alexander book, uh, Timeless Way Building. Sure. Um, so that, that to me is one of these uh, Bibles that I think everybody should be reading if you do uh, user experience along with Design of Everyday Things. And to me, that's a, it's, it's a great book that um, also inspired a lot of computer scientists, you know, the gang of four when they created uh, uh, design patterns for computer science based it on uh, Alexander's book. And that talks a lot about, you know, he's doing it from an architecture point of view. And his his moniker is, you know, creating spaces that live. And he's got all these patterns in how to build, you know, a corner room, for example, so with a window that faces in a particular direction. So the sun comes in. And that's then a space that, quote, lives. Applying intent focus to user experiences and you know, what would it mean or how do how do people how can you think about creating user experiences that then, quote, live, if you will? Are there constructs that you can put together that make make the product very, uh, you know, use, usable and a utility and at the same time very creative, but in a, you know, in a very functional way? So that's kind of how I look at those things. Again, my answer for photography or music might be way different, but uh, sure. hopefully that's right a little bit. No, it's interesting. So how do you apply creativity to interfaces? Because so many, well, there's that one side where, you know, especially if you're doing mobile stuff for Android and, and uh, iOS, like Apple and, and Google both have really well documented design guidelines yep. that, you know, they kind of expect you to at least follow to a certain degree, you can obviously stray from that. And then you have a bunch of other issues. So how do you actually take creativity and actually apply it to the software that you're building? Because you're building it nowadays for so many different screen sizes, so many different platforms, and, and potentially users from their teens into maybe they're retired, right? Depending yep. on what you're building. Yeah, the um the geography and um, just all of that kind of stuff is also super interesting within there. Um, I think it does wind up being a combination of a real, a lot of attributes. And so I think it's very easy to come into user interface design and kind of go, that looks cool. <laughs> I need a button or uh, yeah, I'm just going to follow the Apple guidelines and things like that. But I think customers are savvy enough. Certainly I feel that. Um, where I can walk into something and kind of look at it and go, it just doesn't feel right, you know. And and a lot of times people won't be able to really say, why doesn't that feel right? I followed all the guidelines, but it just doesn't feel right. And I think that there are a couple of these attributes that are super important. And I think that, you know, they're anywhere from visual things like the color palette that people use. You know, you can, in the early days of the internet, how many of us saw blue text on a green background? You know, yeah. things like this, right? <laughs> it's just super garish. I can't read it. It's all about visual. You know, it's not about the, what was written there. It's not about the website. It's just simply a visual aspect where it's like, I can't read that. So it's not functional, let alone it looks ugly because the, you know, the person didn't understand how actually complementary colors work. So, you know, you could put that in one bucket. I think the second one is, you know, how many of us look at a even a wiki page, uh, if you will, or uh, interfaces that just absolutely, you know, cram in as much as they possibly can with really little buttons here or there. 
And it's like, wow, that's super daunting. How do I approach that particular thing? How do I get at the functionality? Now, there's certain exceptions to that as well. But a lot of the times, you know, it's sort of like guidelines go out the window. It's just like I want to give one big interface for everybody. And um, and a lot of times that information overload um, is is really a problem. Um, and that's where you get into, you know, uh, sort of what you're talking about as well, the the difference between some of the kinds of users. I like to differentiate it into, you know, sort of the the beginner or the people that are on ramping versus the experts. Okay. Um, and if I think about, you know, I'll just take uh, the music uh, interface just to take a different area. Sure. So I think you and I mentioned Ableton and, and Logic Pro last time. Logic yeah. Pro has a really nice way of, you know, going into an advanced mode and a lot of other products do as well, where it's like I can quickly make music, even though the buttons are small and all the rest of this, but they know the difference between they're trying to on-ramp me and now that I'm an accomplished, you know, at least a bit twiddler, <laughs> then, you know, now how do I get at the the real power of the thing? And that holding that within an interface is also, I think, a very important attribute. Um, I, I I do think that there's a an aspect of utility wherein the user journey is super important. And so the third bucket I would think about it is you have to test. You have to test a lot and you can't leave things sort of sort of on the shelf. So we do a lot with usertesting.com, with Full Story, with other things where we're constantly looking at how the customer is using our product. And what worked, say, two years ago might not be working anymore because the landscape has changed. You know, either younger people or older people or, as I was mentioning, you know, these solopreneurs or whatever, they, they have different needs. And so watching that customer journey, watching their steps, they come into the product, what did they search on? Um, they are coming here, they're looking for, I don't know, logo making. So you you start their pro you start your product and you give them something else. You give them, you know, a um, something for Instagram post. Well, that person's going to be like, I don't want that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for logo making. So sort of culture um, culturing them along the way and really helping smooth that path and understanding logo making is about okay. Here's already a pre-determined size. Here's some. Uh, example logos that you can make. We also have, let's say, something like curved text, for example. Um, what's what's your name? And we'll make it for you. Um, we've got blend modes or other things. So you want you try something that looks kind of like this so that you can explore. All of these things are super critical for understanding, again, this utility mixed with understanding the, you know, immersing yourself in the problem that you're trying to solve. Without that, I think you get back to the, you know, it's just a pretty interface for something that doesn't actually work. So I'd, I'd say those are at least three ingredients, and there's probably zillions more. Sure. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, an all-in-one small business invoicing and accounting solution. I've been using FreshBooks for over a decade to send estimates for time and expense tracking, sending invoices, and collecting payments online. Then at tax time, I just generate a report that can be sent off to an accountant. To get a free trial of FreshBooks, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com slash FreshBooks. What are your thoughts on leveraging frameworks for some of that stuff like the Android or iOS uh, guidelines or any of the other web frameworks that have kind of been popular over the years? 
Yeah, um, I actually think that, you know, there's a lot of science that went into that. And that is a great start. Um, okay. And sometimes it's the only place that you need go. It depends on the complexity of your interface and things like this. Um, you know, if I think about, uh, you know, and, and it's also actually in the in the uh, landscape itself. So in the gaming world, for example, Mm, you know, how do you how do you think about that? The layout of your game is your game itself. Right. So, you know, adhering to some guidelines is probably not what you want to be doing. But if you're mapping your controls to your your game console, you probably want to use, you know, normal things, right? Using the the left stick click down for for shooting in a shooter game is probably not what you want to be doing. Right. So there's, I think, certain aspects that's way different than something like if I pick on InDesign for a minute. You know, we did a lot of different things that were not part of any guidelines. Now, certainly there are some like, hey, an OK button on Mac looks like this and it's right. in the bottom right, whereas on Windows it looks like that and it's over here. And what's the default? But ultimately, um, at the end of the day, the main interface that you're always working with are palettes, are the, um, the you know the the canvas itself, and and the constructs of things like, you know, uh, a pointer tool or let me select something within a group or something like that. And those are things that, and uh, a platform may have guidelines around like, hey, selection should work like this, but that's very generic, and you never want your product to be really least common denominator. And a lot of these, you know, architectures, especially ones that are cross-platform frameworks, tend to at times be um, least common denominator. And that's what you got to watch out for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, and to, to give Adobe a lot of credit here, when like early on, this is kind of going to date me to like the early 2000s. Yep. Um, the shortcuts to do simple things between Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, um, and and Flash, for yep. example, were all different. Yes, and they Adobe fixed that over you know the last decade or or maybe longer. I can't even remember. But yep. there was a real pain point for a lot of people that were switching between two, three, four, five pieces of Adobe software, and you had to remember all the different shortcuts to do the same thing, basically. Yes. So. Right. But I think yep. that kind of proves the point is sure they acquired some software and like they merged with Macromedia. So it wasn't necessarily their fault, but I'm just, that's a simple example that I think a lot of people could may maybe hopefully remember or at least relate to that. You know, there was yep. a huge problem here. They fixed it over time, but it does take time to sort some of these weird inconsistencies out across platforms and sometimes across different software. Yeah, actually, you know, that's that's a fantastic example because, you know, it sounds like a super innocuous one, right? So yeah. and and I was at the forefront of all of those debates at the time um, where we were talking about like, okay, you know, so Adobe just buys Aldous, Aldous has PageMaker, all these people have particular um, you know, uh, shortcuts that they use. A really great one for PageMaker customers was Command D. Okay. What do you think Command D did? <laughs> Uh, probably delete duplicate something like that yeah, exactly. yeah i was gonna yeah. say duplicate but yeah yeah duplicate right so illustrator does do no it does place oh and like the, place and in big, place or just place? no place just okay. place so okay. like you know and we had a special place tool in and of itself so you come into page maker you, you have a blank canvas and you go hey this is an aggregating app i got to slap a whole bunch of things on my canvas 
All the PageMaker customers were Command-D. I don't know if Quark had the same shortcut, but I want to say they did. I might be wrong. But the point being that all of our customers who are now we're about to ask to upgrade into InDesign, and they're they're all sort of, you know, those, uh, those people that are still using Quark Express, we're now basically saying to them, okay, you know, you use PageMaker, you know that Command-D is place. But now we're going to make Command-D duplicate. So all those people walked in and they all went Command-D and they're like, what's going on? Nothing's yeah. happening. And so these little things wound up becoming, you know, we had we had debate upon debate on exactly what you're talking about. But sometimes it's, you know, when as these as you get different customers that all come from a different perspective, sure. um, these sorts of things evolve with you. And there's, you're never going to make everybody happy. But to your point, you know, now we're in a world where it's like, yeah, command D is duplicate. Well, everybody does duplicate um, that way. And what is, what is place? Well, it's, it's probably something different, but, you know, I don't even know what it is. Yeah. And that's okay because we've been either conditioned or, you know, there's younger people or people that have been brought up on you know, those particular shortcuts. And I think that's true for a lot of these things as you make changes in interfaces that really exist for people, that sometimes it's, uh, it's <laughs> even the littlest things can really start off uh, a lot of different conversations that make it hard for people. Sure. And then what are your thoughts around actually using some of the native platform components because you get some of the accessibility features Yep. And the security stuff and it, you know, it's, they're probably going to work with the next version of the OS, whether it's on mobile or, or desktop or, or what are your thoughts around kind of leveraging that just because of some of the built-in features that you get that you don't have to maintain yourself? Yeah. yeah, there's, there's a lot of goodness in that. I mean, we use a lot of open source code. We use a lot of platform code. I think there's a couple of different questions to answer to me. One of my uh, sort of as I've grown up in this industry a bit, you know, you obviously have the buy versus build question. And to me, I think that um, most engineers, um, when I was a young engineer, put it this way, I liked the the build solution a lot. Me too. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's like "Ah, I can do this faster than this and I can add my own little quirks into it that really solve exactly my problem. And as you mature in that, as you've probably found, is you wind up going, oh, shit, I've got that code that I, you know, still have from 10 years ago. (laughs) And I got to maintain it because there's some new upgrade, you know, or things like this. And the way that I think of it nowadays is, um, is what if, if I have a buy versus build, I ask about that technology or that thing, is this something that I want us to become an expert in? Is this domain knowledge that I need to have? Sure. And so um, that, that's a, you know, an example where it'd be sort of like uh, database storage or cloud you know, uh, storage or something like this, that's not an expertise I need. Um, now, in the case of a lynda.com, at that time, I actually needed it. I needed my own hardware and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah, because it didn't but exist, right? didn't exist. And, yeah. you know, AWS was certainly there in, in the beginnings. But, you know, there's a lot of technology that where it's like, whether it's security or a bunch of other things where it's like, no, you know what, I, I can't, if, if I go down or the East Coast goes down for Amazon or something like that, I need to be very quick in sp- uh, spinning up my my other servers and things like this. And so I need to be 24-7 around the world, all the rest of that. So maybe that's a capability I need to own in-house. 
But in a in the case of a PicMonkey, for example, no, I, I don't need to spend time on that. Or if I'm going to make a content management system at Adobe, well, a lot of my customers use you know content management systems. So you get sure. something like Bridge, for example, yeah. that's a real good capabilities. So, you know, but do I need to recreate WordPress for my blog site? Probably not. So to me, I think that there's there's those aspects of like, you got to answer that question. But I think there's another one, which is time to market. Okay. Um, so for example, um, we our PicMonkey mobile app is a, what we basically call a core app across both platforms. Right. And then we have some edge code for app, uh, iOS and for Android. But the idea of the core app, at least, was our rendering engine and everything that, you know, goes into creating that, I only have to write once. Yeah, smart. And, and when I have to maintain it or add new capabilities, I only have to do that once. And again, it goes back, yes, I'm still answering that question of its capabilities uh, that I want to have in-house, but it's also a time-to-market question. If I can do that, you know, otherwise I'm I'm going to get uh, out competed, if you will, and get get muscled out if I don't. You know, if I spend two and a half years on a completely new mobile platform, that's not going to help me either. So I think that there's a lot of um, real great stuff that people write out there, especially on the open source side, totally. where it's like, you know, I I don't need to rewrite that, and there's a lot of people writing it for me. So awesome. Uh, until I need the capabilities myself, and it's a real value add that you know my company's based on. Well, I also think a lot of people also forget that you can fork an open source project, and well, in a lot of cases, the only requirement is that you maybe commit some code back, or yeah. sometimes they don't care at all. Sometimes yeah. you might have to pay a small fee, and that's tens of dollars or maybe hundreds of dollars. I think some of the bigger ones are maybe thousands of dollars, but even if you had to spend a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars on something that's maintained by a global community, you're going to get your money's worth, right? And there's yep. a new version of Android and iOS, either a beta version or a full release. I know it's not quite six months depending on platform, but, and then, you know, Windows is rolling out every year. Uh, the Mac is rolling out every year and, and other operating systems and other things are updating so fast, right? That you can't, unless you have like an army team of people maintaining all this stuff and you have an unlimited budget, you probably can't maintain all the stuff that you use these days. Yeah, that that because essentially that's what you do have, right? You have an unlimited budget because you're not paying anything, yeah. <laughs> you're right? Yeah. And you have an unlimited number of resources, which is essentially, you know, the rest of the world, if you will, or those coders that are actually, um, you know, on the platform itself. So absolutely, I think that stuff is really great. Now, the only issue around it, though, is... Um, where you get into like, okay, well, I just need this part. Yeah. Of it. And that's where it gets a little bit like, oh, okay, well, now I need, you know, uh, something, you know, uh, a sub allocator for the memory management thing that works like this, and that doesn't work for me. Or this thing was tested on that platform, and I really want to do it on a, you know, new ARM chip for blah 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 that only has this much memory. So there's those kinds of things that yes, you can create, and then obviously give it back to the open source community. But at times you do sit there and kind of go like, oh, there's like five things that I have to kind of change, and it's never a one size fits all kind of thing. And I always say, you know, choose the problem you want to have. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd rather have that problem, if you will, than, you know, a skyrocketing OPEX because I have to build something myself. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's those kinds of things as well. But then how do you 
make sure you still have a good user experience while leveraging these open source things. You've probably built some custom stuff around that yep. or, or with that. And then some of the maybe paid stuff that you've bought, because that gets really tricky, especially when you're mashing, you're not mashing code, but like, you know what I mean? You're kind of just yep. putting it all together, hoping it all plays nice together and then trying to make a really good UX, right? And you have to sacrifice some things on both sides. Yeah, I think you need to really, um, well, first, you really need to think about it ahead of time. Um, you know, there's so many companies, some very successful companies that, you know, when they do M&A, for example, they just simply aggregate a whole bunch of companies under, say, an umbrella site, and they never talk to each other because it's just too hard. Yeah. Um, they were never built that way, and so the interfaces are way different, yet at the same time, they overlap each other a lot in terms of functionality. It's very confusing for the customer. I think a similar thing in terms of actual you know, software engineering, if you have a technology that you need in order to create a, a real great product solution, to me that feels like a, okay, well, um, you know, use some some um, forethought, but also use some really, um, you know, canonical, if you will, computer science or even design tenants. So for example, in computer science, I would say, and back to this pattern stuff that we were talking about, you know, separation of user interface from model code, if you will, this idea of the the architecture underneath the waterline is the th is the engine that just moves things, and the interface is the stuff that the customer sees above the waterline, and that stuff as they communicate needs to be sort of separated. They can't be intermixing within each other, and if you're able to do that, then you can kind of say like, hey, I don't I don't know how this interface, and this, this is a little altruistic, but I don't know how this interface is really going to connect to this engine, but I need to be able to, you know, in the case of visuals, I need to be able to flatten images from a raster perspective or draw, you know, on a screen somehow or represent a spline, if you will. And then it's up to the, now you go to the interface and you go, I, I, I don't know how that's done, but for me, I, all I have to now think about, you know, is how am I going to present this to the customer? And you can um, architect, think deeply about, you know, some of these patterns and things like this that actually start um, communicating between those particular models without getting them intertwined. And I think the remaining problem then winds up being those are potentially different people and think differently. Interesting. You know, that the, the architect person that's really in the engine may not have as much experience with what are customers actually doing, especially in a large company. And the designer may not have knowledge about like, how is this built? And, you know, what are, what are my limitations? And so then the communication between those organizations becomes your next, again, problem you choose to have uh, instead of the intertwining code. Now it's a question of like, Hey guys, I want to be able to do this, that, and the other thing, and having having an engineer understand. Oh, I see what you want to do. Um, I can do this and not have it be something that's handed back, and it looks like, you know, looks like uh, my my child's first drawing for Halloween <laughs> or something. <laughs> so no, you know, that's another problem in and of itself. For sure, and and just like to, to follow that up, because. Like I'm always been a fan of trying to get somebody from the business side, from the development side, and then somebody on the design side, whether it's me or somebody else, like actually in a room 
arguing on a whiteboard and I don't mean arguing bad, like in a negative context. Yep. Like I, I want to discuss it. I want to yep. talk about like, what can we build? And before any line of code is written or anything's been designed, we're going to have a rough wireframe done on, on the whiteboard just so then we can all say, yeah, I think that's really buildable. And yes, that's designable. And that's yep. going to make sense for our users. But how do you leverage kind of AI and big data into that as well? Because historically we all know that Amazon and Google, and I'm sure there's tons of other companies that, that as well that are like, well, this shade of blue converts better than mm -hmm. that shade of blue. So we're going to use this one. And it's really hard to argue with that, right? Like I might hate blue. I don't, but if I yep. did, for example, yep. and it's just like that ruins the whole design, but yep. if the design's working and that blue button converts compared to, I don't know, the orange one that I had there originally, for yep. example, how do you manage that like push and pull between all the different decide this sorry all the, the different yeah. sides of the yep. the coin there? Yeah, uh, short answer because there's a long one probably sure. <laughs> for the book in and of itself. But um, I think that the first thing you have to understand is what is what is the customer trying to do and what's your real goal? What are you measuring against? You know any of the good stuff that you'd talk about if you're talking about whether it's funnel conversion or user customer journey or things like this. I think where, you know, your example, which is a good one, which is like, hey, let's let's wireframe this on the on the whiteboard, probably starts with a user story. Like as a user, I want to do the following thing so sure. that I can do X. And that that aspect of it is really, really critical to have right. And it has to be at the right altitude. A lot of times what people wind up doing is in the case of a blue button, for example, it might be as a user, I want to, I don't know, start a free trial so that I can understand your product better. And so in that particular case, it might be like, a, oh, and blue converts better for a free trial button, whatever. Yeah. And so, but really, is that the problem you're trying to solve? Or is it like, hey, we what what is it I'm trying to solve? I'm trying to solve that this customers come in to use the product. They want to do something and I want to show them the benefit and the power of this particular product that has nothing to do with blue, sure. that has everything to do with how am I solving this? So I think the first thing is understanding what altitude you're talking about and ensuring that you're at the right altitude for the problem that's at hand. I think the second one that's very interesting out of that one, the one I see in spades anywhere I go, is that when after, after that meeting that you just had, the engineer goes away, creates a spec, or the designer goes away, creates a spec, they meet a couple times, et cetera. And then you go into, you know, if you're doing agile, you go into sprint planning meetings, and then you go into, you know, uh, triage meetings. And that's where I think these things break down because I usually people don't have the business owner in the room and the business decisions that are being traded off wind up being made by the people that don't own those decisions, whether that be an engineer or even a designer. And so what happens is, you know, it becomes more of a, well, that's a little too hard for us to do. And you said you wanted this, you know, next week. So we made this other thing and we did it like this. It's not quite your spec over there, Mr. Designer, but that's okay. And that, that kind of um, sort of connective tissue is really, really critical and really hard to get right because you know, you can't always have your CMO or somebody in every single triage meetings, but you really have to understand everybody's roles and responsibilities well enough so that you can make, again, the, the, the right call, but you can also understand, 
hey, I know what you're talking about, but we got to bop up the altitude on this one so that we actually make the right overarching decision. I found that those kinds of things has nothing to do with what is the design or what's the architecture, but that communication step is the place where a lot of these can go very, very wrong. 100% agree. I also think that if you figure out what version one's going to be, and then you might talk about version two, three, four, five, Mm. but figure out what version one's going to be. But when you're doing design and development, you need to be thinking of how can we expand this to yeah. future versions so we're, we don't have to rewrite or refactor as much as possible? Because that's gonna that will ultimately happen in some cases. But yep. I find if you think in that versioning, and it sounds like you agree with me, or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that mixed with you know as we call you know minimum viable product and things like this. I think uh, for me, I think the 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 push pull around that one winds up being yes. I want to create something so that I can, you know, build on it going forward. But MVP, too many times it winds up being um, M as a, you know, big, huge capital M, as, as in yeah. it's the most minimal thing. And again, you've lost the almost the uh, the higher level altitude of what are the use cases and problems you're trying to solve. And then it doesn't have, because you, you know, architected for the future, it potentially doesn't have the the functionality that um, that is really expected, and I'll give you three examples of that. Sure. One actually was InDesign 1.0. InDesign 1.0 didn't have quite all the things in it, and it was kind of like a everybody was like wah wah wah, you know, it's like oh my god, really? But obviously, we had built it for uh, you know infinite extensibility, and and it and it succeeded. Um, PicMonkey Mobile actually, I'll I'll blame ourselves. That was another example where. We had so many expectations on a product that we actually made an MVP, but it wasn't solving all of the use cases, not all of them, but the core ones, if you will. And then if you look at the blowback that Adobe's getting for uh, Photoshop on the iPad as an example, right? That's another example where great product, but, you know, the kinds of things that people want to do for that were just, you know, missing a couple of notes, if you will. And I think that's the bigger problem. Um, people get into the the troika of we we have a time to market issue. We we can only fit so much code in a five pound bag, <laughs> and it has to meet all of these use cases. And that sort of mixture, I usually find the MVP has to really really solve a core set of use cases so that people continue to come back. And if it doesn't, then you're not hitting that. MVP, but even, you know, product market fit, if you will. And that I think is super dangerous. And so I think it comes back to altitude, but it's this fine crafting of those, those kind of dimensions that I think is really super interesting in and of itself. No, I, I a hundred percent agree with you and I'm sure we could probably go on for another hour, but we're sadly out of time. Okay. And so how about we close (laughs) with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and PicMonkey? Yeah, so PicMonkey is just simply www.pickmonkey.com on the that's our um, online uh, application, free to try, all that stuff. We also have iOS and Android versions of PicMonkey up in the app stores. Um, download them; it's free to use. And uh, yeah, um, there's also some photography stuff and all the rest of that 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 you can see on my websites. But uh, PicMonkey is there for um, for people to try out. 
Perfect. Well, again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day, man. Okay, thanks a lot, Ken. Be Thank well. You. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.